If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Who were the Celts? What does Celt mean? And is it even right to use the word Celt? Simon Jenkins has written a new book on the topic, The Celts, A Skeptical History. And David Musgrove put in a call to him to find out more. David began by asking Simon why he chose to write this book. I'm Simon Jenkins. I'm primarily a journalist. Uh, I have written various history books uh, because I'm fascinated in bringing history closer to the readers. Uh, And they're therefore short histories, which people seem to like. So this is a short history of the Celts. I wrote it largely because people complained when I read History of the English that I hadn't dealt with the Celts. I then investigated the matter further, being half Celt myself, although that word is a word I object to very strongly, and realised that the Celts never existed. Uh, They don't exist as a group. It is a nonsense. It's a mythical legend, uh, not a historical reality. And I wanted to sort of bring up to date the controversy about what the Celts really were or weren't, so people could understand that nowadays, I believe, it's actually a damaging concept to leave in in general circulation, rather than just an amiable legend. Okay, lots of points to pick up on there, but let's uh, let's just go to the uh, to the title of your book. The title is "The Celts: A Skeptical History." What are you skeptical of? You've you've kind of just alluded to that, but but uh, but let's just dive into the skepticism. There is a vast uh, store around the world of academic studies of Celticism. It's not as if it's a, a unknown subject. Uh, since the nineteen sixties, people have challenged it. Uh, largely because, in a straightforward, simple reason, the Celts never existed. There was no such people, there was no such land, there was no such uh, language even. There's a Celtic series of languages. There is nothing that unites the Celts together at all. Uh, 
And I actually think now, and it's the point at which the book becomes very relevant, is now politically highly charged in this country. What are the Celts or were the Celts? And what is their relationship with the Anglo-Saxons who also never existed? Uh, So I'm trying to debunk what is now legendary history uh, and restore it to real history. We're going to have to be very careful with language uh, here, aren't we? So when is it appropriate, if at all, to talk about Celts, Celticness and Celtic languages. What? Just try and simplify it for our listeners, so they're so they're clear about uh, the nomenclature we should be we should be attending to. Well, there's what I call the traditional view, um, which is that there were people called Celts. Uh, the traditional view was that they existed somewhere in Europe, possibly Northern Europe, possibly Western Europe, and that they invaded the British Isles at some point in the second or first millennium BC, took over the entire islands, evicted or uh, conquered in some sense of the word conquered, the existing ancient Britons, so-called, made them all speak Celtic, a language which has now been identified roughly as Brythonic, a sort of Celtic. And they were in turn in total occupation of Britain when the Romans invaded. Everybody spoke a Celtic language. They remained there when the Romans left, and they were then invaded a hundred years later, by people called the Anglo-Saxons or the Saxons, who made half of them speak something called English. I have to say, I'm not alone in this view. What I am surprised at is how difficult it is to get uh, scepticism about those two events, the Celtic invasion and the Saxon invasion, into general circulation. Uh, Many people in this world are friends of mine or acquaintances of mine. No one argues very strongly with this. J.R. Tolkien, the great Tolkien, uh, debunked it in the 1960s and said it's a load of absolute rubbish. There are texts right through uh, modern history, half a century of them, saying there were no Celts, there was no Saxon invasion. All these things are now quite common in specialist academic circles. I still find the British Museum holds exhibitions of the Celts. The BBC runs series on the Celts. Uh, They come up all the time as the Celtic fringe. They've infused themselves in British politics. So the Celtic uh, politics is distinct from the Saxon politics, and I think very damagingly so. And finally, I have to say, I think that lumping together what was actually a a multitude of different groups of people across Europe as Celts demeans their specialism. Uh, There's never been anything in common between the Scots, the Irish and the Welsh. Uh, Let's face it, they've never banded together. They've never been one nation. They've never formed one football team. They don't speak one language. Uh, What is it they've got in common? The word Celtic. And it doesn't exist. And that's what I'm trying to say in this book. Okay, and I just—it's not—we're not talking about the Celts specifically here, but um, you mentioned earlier that you don't think the Anglo-Saxons ever existed either. Just explain to our readers why you say that. Uh, it is now becoming apparent that—and there's this great conundrum in British history: what did the uh, English speak when the Romans landed? Did they all speak Celtic, Brythonic Celtic, which is a version of Welsh? Uh, the general view, not the general view, but a widespread view now, is either that we simply don't know, or that they probably spoke an early form of Germanic which became English, uh, and, and that the theory that they were um, invaded and massacred uh, in the 5th century by invading Saxons, Frisians, Jutes, people from Central Europe, um, is just not the case. Uh, and that's now been comprehensively debunked, I think. And yet it still is. If you ask almost any historian, schoolchild, or any member of the public, is it true that the Saxons invaded Britain and made everybody speak English who previously spoke Celtic? They say yes. And I'm trying to get to the stage where that at least is is, is now debunked. And I'm not the only person to say that, I have to say. 
We're going we're gonna to have to dip into that one a little bit more because there's there's been a lot of conversation about what happened in, in post-Roman Britain and, and this question of, of incoming people from the continent. There's there's um, scientific evidence from DNA analysis and isotope evidence, which does suggest, I think, quite a lot of movement of people. But there has been a lot of conversation about uh, whether that's invasion or, or you know whether invasion is an appropriate term. But I, I, I do need to pick up on this question of, of language because I'm not sure. I think I'm not a historical linguist, so I'm not going to be able to have a, a big debate about it with you, but I don't think that is uh, a, a widely held view that there existed a some sort of proto-Old English in what's now England before the Romans arrived. So, so why do you why do you think that is correct? Well, firstly, uh, it's like Sherlock Holmes' dog that didn't bark in the night. There's almost no known case of a language being completely wiped out over a very large area of Europe by an incoming language in quite the way it's supposed to have happened in this country. So prima facie, it should be the case that the language that's spoken in the eastern side of the British Isles in, 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 in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century um, uh, AD was likely to have been the one that was there before. M- many people spoke Latin, we know that. But the theory that they all spoke Celtic and then they all, in a matter of 100 years, spoke a completely different language, no trace of which has very little Celtic in English. It's, it's, it's almost unknown to find a Celtic word dropping up in English now. So it, prima facie, it looks as if it, there must have been a preceding language on the east coast of England. Then you come into the, the, the archaeology of it. Uh, the, the east coast of England has very, very many German, Germanic characteristics. The normal um, surviving linguistic marker is uh, geographical places, mountains, rivers, lands, and so on. There are very few Celtic geographic markers down the east side of Britain. Uh, and this is there's been a copious... Um, uh, academic study of the subject. I'm, I'm not repeating something that's, that's out of my own brain, but no one has actually cohered it. If I had to say one or two people have cohered it uh, and, and said, well, it now looks as if it's highly possible that the east side of Britain spoke a Germanic language way back in history. We can't put it any more specific than that. What what is um, sort of undeniable is that the Celtic speaking people did exist in the Iron Age in in Britain and Ireland. What's what's the current state of academic knowledge about how that language got here? Well, the, the big revolution, and you referred to it yourself, is 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 DNA. It was called DNA archaeology. DNA archaeology has utterly transformed almost every area of demographics. We do know that there was a constant movement of people into and possibly out of the British Isles right back to the Ice Age. Even the DNA is controversial. The conventional view is still, Barry Cunliffe and others have studied this in great detail, the the predominant population of the British Isles arrived within a few millennia of the last Ice Age and have been there ever since. They were disparate groups, many different groups. There was no no large group of Celts. There was no large group of anybody else. They almost certainly spoke some original language of which we have no trace at all. At some point, much later on, people from the West, and this is very much Barry Cunliffe's view, speaking a Celtic tongue, one of a group of Celtic tongues, would have been trading up and down the the West Coast of Europe. The Bronze Age was the great opening up of Europe when people who'd never spoken to each other before had to speak to each other. They needed a lingua franca. The lingua franca appears to be one of the languages emerging out of Iberia, out of uh, Spain and Portugal. Uh, and it moved up the coast, uh, and Cunliffe's theory is that it, it, it infiltrated Western France, leaving traces in, in, in Brittany now, and the west side of the British Isles. At the same time, and this is way back, long before the Romans or, 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 even, the, or even the Iron Age, similar movements were taking place out of Northern Europe. And at the moment, the DNA archaeology 
is confused on this subject. Uh, all we know is that, 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 that the British Isles were being occupied following the, 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 the loss of Doggerland and the, um, the creation of the British Isles as islands, were populated probably from two sources, Northern Europe and uh, Iberia. We don't know what they taught, spoke. Uh, the Celtic languages, and they're plural, they're not singular. Uh, it's like Romance. I mean, there's not a Romance language, not even a Germanic language. Uh, the Celtic languages came with probably, probably I emphasise the, Bro- the Bronze Age traders uh, uh, arrived in these uh, in these islands. Were spoken predominantly to the western side because that's where the people came from that were trading with them. You have to realise the western side of the British Isles in this period of prehistory were the active era. They were probably the most productive, the most busy. It's where the, where the copper and tin was mined in Cornwall, and they were speaking the new lingua franca of Europe, which was a Celtic tongue of some sort. Uh, but there were clearly many different tongues because they settled in the British Isles with very different di- different formations, uh, Brythonic and Goidelic with the two groups of these languages. But they never cohered in, into one, like, for instance, English did. A couple of things we need to clarify. You mentioned Doggerland earlier. Doggerland is uh, is the bit of uh, land that is basically between Scotland, Northern England, Scotland, and uh, and Scandinavia, which was flooded when the uh, when 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 water came in at the end of the ice age. So that's it's, it's area of land called that is now called Doggerland, but is underwater. Um, you mentioned Brythonic and Goidelic languages. Perhaps we, we're going to need to to, to try and uh, explain that a bit more. What, what what do you mean by those terms? Well, the, the whole theory of the Celts as a people emerged in the late 17th century and 18th century when antiquarianism and interest in the, in, in the deep past was becoming more common uh, among more specialised, let's say, uh, British academics or scholars. Margaret Edward Lloyd, who was a, actually a Welshman working in Oxford, um, and a number of people in France, realised that the, um, the, uh, the so to sp- so-called primitive languages of the west side of Europe uh, were in a group. They were similar. Cornish was similar to Breton. Irish was similar to, to Gaelic in Scotland. You know, Welsh was similar to, to Cornish and Breton, for that matter. I mean, these, these, were, these were groups of languages. And they then leapt to the assumption they were one people. It was that leap that's been with us ever since. Uh, and, and my point, and not just my point, the, the, the skeptic's point, is that these were different groups of people who spoke their, probably their own languages in the post-Iron Age period. All of them came into contact with tradespeople, with traders of the Bronze Age. And these people wanted a lingua franca as they le- later needed Latin and they later needed English. We don't say all people who spoke English are from the same tribe. It's absurd. Uh, the parallel is with the Celts, Celtic peoples. As Barry says, the Celtic-speaking peoples, for God's sake. Uh, and that's how it developed, uh, a Celtic language uh, or Celtic languages to the west side of this notional divide. Probably, and we don't know, probably origins of Germanic languages on the eastern side. And, and, that, and that is the area of the North Sea which uh, I think is a very interesting area. A number of books have been written about it. But I don't think the North Sea had much to do with Celts or Celtic languages. This is where we need to get really careful, isn't it? So, so there were definitely people speaking languages or presumably proto-variants of these languages. But the, the danger here is that you start trying to load on ethnic labels or even national labels to that. And that's where you start getting into trouble when you talk about Celts. So, it, so you, you need to be careful and say it's people speaking what we call Celtic languages. Um, is, that, that's, that, is that a fair, yes, a fair position? Yes, yeah. a, a very important one too, because uh, as we may come on to, by the 19th century, huge uh, racial distinctions are being drawn by politicians between Celtic people and so-called Saxon people. And at what point, if ever, did anyone ever say, I am a Celt? No one has ever said, I am a Celt. 
I ask, I ask, I ask Welsh people and Irish people and Scottish people, do you say you're a Celt? There's always a silence. Well, I mean, I, I, I assume I, my background is Celtic. They always have a, 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 a term to use of that word. It almost never appears in active politics. Uh, it, it, Celtic is, is it's, I, I'm fascinated by, I, I, see, I see Celtic bakeries. I see Celtic food. I see Celtic fashion. I'm fascinated by this word. It, it, it's got a sort of, it's slight glossy. It is very curious. But, but the thing that fascinates me most is that the Celts never themselves call themselves one people. They never did. They never have. They are the creation of academics, of, of, of scholars, of antiquarians, of druids and goodness knows who since the 19th century. And we must put them in that box. OK, so, so when, ex- when exactly does the word come into circulation? When does the word Celtic come into circulation? Well, the word Celtic, to be fair, uh, goes back to Herodotus. Uh, it appears in Herodotus and it basically means foreigner someone beyond the bounds of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and, and, uh, and I think that that's, that's probably one, one of the many misconceptions. Early historians longed for there to have been some great people in Europe before the Romans and the, the Greeks and the Romans came along. Uh, uh, they were called Gauls by the, by the, um, by the Romans, uh, which is an, another word for Celts. So the world, is, the world has always been around as some collective term for people who are not something else. And what I find Ironic is that in, in English history, the Celts are not the English. They're, they're, they're the only race that's defined by a negative. So, I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it's in those terms that I see the word. Celts, interestingly, they've never formed any sort of alliance. I mean, I've, I've, in the book, I try and discover, was anyone ever suggesting one Celtic land or one Celtic army or one Celtic alliance against the English? Almost never. Uh, and attempts to form Celtic leagues, and there's a perfectly respectable um, Celtic Studies League, all founder on the fact they've all got to speak English to get on with each other. Okay, th- th- so what you just said leads in nicely to a, a question which is going to charge us forward in time. We talked quite a lot about prehistory and and and, and Roman period. Let's move into the into the Middle Ages or the early Middle Ages. So we've got what the the burgeoning English state, the English polity in East England, with people as you say speaking uh, a variant of, of English, well old old English at that point, uh, and you've got people uh, to the west and north who are speaking Celtic languages at that point. So what is the relationship between the burgeoning English polity, which some would say has sort of imperial aspirations, and, and those uh, those peoples to the West and North? I suppose you've said there's never been pan-Celticism. I'm, I'm sort of thinking about King Athelstan, the, the famous English king who, who did much to sort of de- develop uh, the English polity, uh, the Battle of Brunanburh, when he fought uh, like a, a a group of, of lots of other people from across Britain. That's kind of the closest I can think of to some sort of alliance. Is that Does that fit into your story at all? It, it, it does so precisely. Athelstan was the first, so to speak, English, uh, all English king, rather unsuccessfully so. He did fight this famous battle at Brunanburh in, in 937, when for the only time in history, I think, the, the, the Irish, the Scots, and, and I may say the Vikings, uh, actually got together to fight the English as, as one, and it was a disastrous defeat. Interestingly, the Welsh never turned up. But no, I mean, it, what's interesting, and I think I have to get back to geography. I mean, I, I believe passionately in geography as the origin of history. The point about England was it was a very fertile, comfortable, ultimately prosperous place. Uh, the tribes of the English naturally fused together. They naturally became uh, firstly the Heptarchy, the Seven, then the Three, then eventually England. And they've remained that ever since. As a United Nations or a uniting nation, 
It was the easier for them to conquer westwards, the disparate peoples of the West, who were never sort of associating together with each other. They were desperately bad at associating within each other. I mean, Ireland's Irish states, Welsh states and Scottish states were almost continually at war within themselves throughout the prehistoric period into the Middle Ages. The Scots were fighting each other to the 17th and 18th century. The, the Celtic-speaking peoples were terrible at uniting. They were thus the more easily conquered. Uh, and, and the conquest of them was ramshackle. I describe it in my book. Uh, it, it was chaotic. It was cruel. It, it was the easy assumption of imperial power by the English state over the British Isles. And it's been that way ever since. And you never see any sort of moment of brotherhood between these the, the people in what we would now call Wales, Scotland, Ireland, Cornwall. The nearest you get to it is the occasional bardic song. Um, and I've dug up some bardic songs where someone says, can't all, can't all these wonderful people get together and fight the dastardly English? Even they don't mention Celts. They just say we're cousins. The word cousin comes up quite a lot. Uh, what's quite interesting is, and I actually find it a puzzle, uh, that the, the Welsh-speaking, the Brythonic-speaking group of Celtic speakers uh, in Cornwall uh, and Cumbria and much of the north of England, did fuse ultimately with the English. They haven't fused totally, even to this day. But they did fuse with the English, and the English found them, they were easily conquered and assimilated. And those are two very different things. Whereas the Welsh, the Irish and the Scots never did. I think it has to do largely with geography. I think the geography of Wales was was hostile to invaders, as Edward I, even Edward I found. Uh, Scotland was Scotland and Ireland was across the sea. So there was a natural division, geographical division, between an English empire, an emerging English empire, which plenty of people before me have called it, and the Celtic-speaking peoples, or the peoples who happened to speak Celtic who were at the west of the British Isles, uh, over the course of history. And it, and it is, I mean, I think, sadly, still true today. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It must be infuriating for a serious Celtic academic always to be associated with Druids. I mean, there were Druids. There were, there were Irish Druids and Welsh Druids, Scottish ones. I think they probably were. But, but I mean, it, it, it's bedeviled by what happened in the 18th century when this great upsurge of interest in the past took place and there was not, no rigorous history attached to it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So your argument is there's never been any sort of pan-Celtic alliance, and yet we still talk about this, as you, as you talked about earlier, that, that, that we have this concept of, of Celticness. So when does that become a, a thing? You've, you've talked about it a little already. When's, when is the moment when, when academics start to get interested in Celticness as a concept, and why? 
Much of it started with mythology and legend and, and indeed indeed cultural fraud, as some people have called it. Yolo Morgan in, in McGannog in Wales, uh, Macpherson in Scotland, uh, invented a whole sort of mythological history surrounding their respective uh, peoples in, 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 back in history. But that, that, that sort of became fashionable. Uh, the Celtic, so-called Celtic revival at the end of the 18th century was very powerful. People craved a background. They, they, they wanted a past. England's past was boring. They then thought this, this, these sort of invading Saxon warriors came and smashed everybody up and blood ran through the rivers. Uh, and, and then they came nice Anglo-Saxons for some curious reason very shortly after that. But England was, in, its sen- in, in a sense, the problem. Uh, so it was England against the others. The others never developed any joint uh, identity. I mean, it is phenomenal to me. I mean, I asked ask nationalists, you're, you're a Welsh nationalist, a Scottish nationalist, why do you never get together? Do you ever talk? No. Do you have, any, do you have conferences together to discuss devolution with the English? No. They do very occasionally, but they basically never get together. They are not the same peoples. They are actually, the, you might call it, they were called by, by Oxford, Oxford History of England or Britain in the 1930s, the detritus of Europe, left at the western shores by the tide of history. Uh, and I, it's in many ways tragic. I mean, the, 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 the Devonians, the Cornish, the Cumbrians, the Cumbrian is, is, is the same as Cumbria. It's a, it's a Welsh word, Cumbria. they become reasonably happy parts of the English native empire, if you want to call it that. But, but Wales, Scotland and Ireland never have. And the chief reason, I think, is that the English hated the fact that these peoples never quite knuckled under. They never admitted that they were going to be one of the, of, 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 in a British nation. And, and the whole history of, of the, the British Isles, the history of the British Isles properly so-called, is the history of bitter internal feuding right from the Middle Ages to the present day, to a degree that's just not found anywhere else in Europe, not even in Spain, are they as desperate as as the Irish became by the beginning of the 20th century. I'm going to have to pick you up on a phrase you just used there, the British Isles. Some people would would take offence at the use of that in terms of of what it means politically, but you're, you're comfortable with using the term British Isles? I, I've got a, I've got a long chapter at the beginning of my book on nomenclature. <laughs> they, they have been the British Isles uh, in geography. They have been the British Isles, uh, in, in other words, a united country of some sort, uh, right through to 1921 when Ireland broke away. I don't see any point in pretending they aren't the British Isles. Whether they're all British people uh, is a different matter. And the fact is that relations between England and Ireland, and I'm using these terms very carefully, have been so bad throughout history that eventually the Irish effectively said, we're never ever going to be called British. Uh, Jonathan Swift's famous tract saying, saying, never, ever, ever use the word Britain in my presence of Ireland. The Irish really feel very strongly about it. And I have to say, having read Irish history now in some detail, I do rather sympathise with them. I think British Isles is the collective term for the British Isles. It's it's the same way that I suppose America is the collective term for North America. But there we are. I mean, the political correctness of this subject is is, is lethal. So going back to the Celtic revival, so people started to become really interested in it in the the late 18th uh, century, as you said. How has that interest shaped our understanding of Celticness today, uh, the way that we think about it in the 21st century? it's, It's a difficult question to answer. It really is. You have to break it down. In, into the Welsh, the Scots and the Irish. You really do. Uh, and the dear old Cornish. I mean, I, I, I keep trying to fuse Cornwall into my story and it's not very easy. But the fact is that the relations between England, between London, let's call it London, 
and uh, these three constituent, I hesitate to use provinces, nations uh, of the British Isles have always been vexed. They've always been difficult. There's, there's, there have been periods of happiness, relative happiness. The, the curious one, I mean, Wales is very ambivalent. I mean, Wales has often been very pro-English. Wales didn't turn up in Brunanburgh. Uh, Wales has never taken part in any, any, any sort of great um, Celtic Union. Uh, when Wales uh, fused with England under Henry VIII, uh, as, as, as England and Wales, one country, it still is in all the statistics, uh, when it fused with England, um, the Welsh were very happy. I mean, they, 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 they published peons of praise for the new peace between England and Wales. So Wales is a slightly special case, uh, less so now, which is again interesting. But, but, but Scotland and Ireland, very different countries. Scotland was always respected by London. Scotland was regarded as a proper nation with which London had come into a, a, an alliance in, uh, at the beginning of the 18th century. Ireland was regarded as, as, as a colony. Uh, the Irish were regarded as inferior people. The language refer, used to refer to the Irish during the Irish famine in the 1840s is appalling. You, you can hardly repeat it in a book today. They genuinely were regarded as a lesser breed. Uh, and indeed, some of the administrators after the famine said they ought all to be packed into ships and sent to America. And millions of them were. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the relations between England and these places was very, very different in each case. Very vexed. But I, I, I come back to my point. They still defined themselves over against the English, not with each other. I was chatting to the academic um, Elizabeth Boyle, Dr. Elizabeth Boyle, um, the other day. She, she works on uh, old old Irish and uh, and and uh, uh, sort of early Irish tomes. And she she described to me how quite often when people start talking about early Irish history, it sort of devolves into this sort of misty eyed view of Celticism of like you know some sort of mythical past where where there's a, a sort of a cloud over everything and, and it's all all a bit sort of sort of fuzzy around the edges. Do you do you sort of do you agree with that that sense of looking at things? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, 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 it must be infuriating for a serious Celtic academic always to be associated with Druids. I mean, <laughs> there were Druids. There were, there were Irish Druids and Welsh Druids, Scottish ones, I think they probably were. But, but I mean, it, it, it's bedeviled by what happened in the 18th century when this great upsurge of interest in the past took place and there was not, no rigorous history attached to it. The, the Irish, uh, who have a wonderful history, uh, I mean, the history of Ireland is magnificent. And indeed, the nearest I've ever come to a Celtic movement of any sort was, was what's called Celtic Christianity in, in, uh, in, in fifth century Ireland, uh, when St. Patrick and others spread out from Ireland, in many ways, I would say conquered, but, but, um, but uh, were missions to Scotland and right down to into Essex. It was, a, it was a great movement and it was, to that extent, genuinely Celtic. But the famous thing was they, all had to have, they always had to have translators with this so they could speak to the local people. But it was, it was a genuine, Celtic Christianity was, it was a genuine thing. Uh, and I think the, the appropriate term to use of it is Celtic Christianity. Okay, well, I uh, I spoke to um, uh, an academic the other day, uh, an expert in uh, early sort of religion, early Christianity, and he was adamant that we shouldn't use the term Celtic Christianity because uh, there was uh, it, it sort of never really existed in his view, and and there it wasn't really a, a sort of a, an encompassing uh, thing, but. Um, but you 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 would disagree. Uh, I, no, I'd seat him immediately. <laughs> Any false Celticism I'm against, and I think I'd rather use the word Irish. I mean, it was Irish Christianity. Uh, it, the point about it, and this was, uh, I think, Tertullian, uh, the Roman writer, noted this. The point about Irish Christianity was it had nothing to do with Rome. I mean, Ireland was never a part of the Roman Empire, and yet it was in Ireland that, for a, for a brief period, Christianity probably had its most vigorous flowering uh, and produced the Book of Kells and it produced the Lindisfarne Gospels. Uh, 
by, by missionaries. Um, it was quite remarkable. I think Ireland deserves all the credit, Celts none. Okay, two more things. Um, Brittany, we haven't talked about Brittany very much. When you when you think about Celticness today and Pan Celticness, they sort of they they have events in Brittany, sort of Pan Celtic Cayleys and things like that. Where where does Brittany fit into this story, if at all? Uh, it, it doesn't really. Uh, Barry Cunner has just written a very good book about Brittany, which is the last word on uh, in answering your question. Brittany was clearly a Cornish colony. So it was, it was, it was, it was founded by, not founded by, it was occupied by uh, people from Cornwall, Devon, and Cornwall, probably in, in the in the probably in the, in the fifth or sixth century, probably escaping English people moving west across southern Britain, uh, and they brought with them their particular version of language. It's thought probable that the language that they were speaking was not dissimilar from the Gaulish that was being spoken in uh, that part of France at the time, but certainly they did develop an identity, uh, a, a linguistic identity, and also a sort of semi-separatist identity over against the rest of France, which was quite distinctive and remains that to this day. And, and this is, in a sense, the, 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 the denouement of this whole story. These groups of people in Europe today are not going away. They are becoming more prominent, more proud of their identity, more constructive in creating that identity in cultural terms through learning the language. I think it's a terrible mistake forcing people to learn Welsh or Irish. When you stop forcing them to, they suddenly want to. And and, Welsh is now a very popular language on Duolingo. It's quite extraordinary. So there's no problem here. The problem is almost entirely political, but you may want to ask me about that. Well, let's 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 finish up on that. Um, that you know, being mindful, of course, that this is a, a BBC uh, History Magazine podcast, and we need to be uh, be careful about uh, about politics. But but why why are you writing this? Are you, are you trying to make a, a point about where the United Kingdom is going? Well, all history is about politics, right? Uh, yes, is the answer to the question. I I I personally uh, am an old-fashioned unionist and a newfangled nationalist. Uh, I think we've got to find a way of not having another Ireland in Scotland or in Wales. Ireland's departure from the United Kingdom was an absolute tragedy, and most historians recognise that. Uh, not a week passes without Northern Ireland causing us trouble, and that Northern Ireland trouble is a direct result of the inability of the English to make peace with the Irish and to find a way of devolving power, devolving a sense of autonomy and identity to a subordinate group of people within their union such that consensus could be maintained. The French have done it mostly, the Germans have done it, the Italians have done it, the Spanish have trouble doing it, but they're doing it. Britain is the only country in Europe which in the 20th century has broken up uh, and, uh, and now in the 21st century appears to be about to break up again. Uh, the only other country that's done that is Czechoslovakia, and I suppose you have to say Yugoslavia. But it is shocking to me that a developed country like Britain cannot make peace with its subordinate groups. That has to lie in federalism. It has to lie in some form of devolution, which enables these people to feel that they have autonomy within their own terms and within their own borders. That was Simon Jenkins. His book... The Celts, A Skeptical History, is out now. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might also be interested in a conversation we had with Sir Barry Cunliffe about Brittany, which was, of course, mentioned in this interview. Just search for Barry Cunliffe in our podcast archive to bring that one up. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Jack Bateman.